Our Old Testament scripture reading is Genesis 16. If you are visiting with us, you may feel what, well, any one of us might be feeling. This is a bit of a strange passage to read right now. And so we want to be reminded that we are committed to the discipline of working through books of the Bible. And that means we don't get to pick and choose what texts we come to. Although I did strategize things from a while ago to make sure we would arrive at these passages for Advent. And so I want to remind us of the theme that we are pulling through this sort of sub-series And that is called the shape of the sun, S-O-N. How these texts of scripture in particular reveal to us the shape. They, They point forward to who our Lord Jesus Christ would be in his incarnation. And as they do that, they do so because they point upward to who the Son of God is eternally for his people. And so our goal in all of this this morning is that we would see Christ and that we would hear his voice speaking to us through his word. Genesis 16, as we continue our series in the book of Genesis. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she, saw what she had, when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Be'er Lahoi Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Our New Testament reading is John 19, verses 16 through 27. John 19, verses 16 through 27. So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather, This man said, I am King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word. As we come to your word, we seek the presence of your Holy Spirit that we might understand it and receive it by faith. We do this humbly, acknowledging that For any of what we do in worship, to be good and fruitful for us, it must because you are freely, you freely choose to be among us with your spirit. And so we pray then that you would, by your spirit, enable us to hear and receive the voice of our Lord Jesus Christ speaking to us through his word. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, when I met with uh, the Borsma family earlier this week to talk about baptism, I warned them that I was not able to, because of how the sermon schedule works, to do specifically a baptism sermon this morning. I can't always do that. It doesn't quite feel like we're having weekly baptism like we did a while ago. It slowed down a bit, but nevertheless, I can't always do distinctly a baptism sermon. And I told them, don't worry though. The sermon this Sunday fits very well with baptism in particular. What I did not tell them is, every sermon fits very well with baptism in particular. And this is helpful to remember as we come to this text this morning. 
It's strange in many ways. There's lots of interesting questions about how to interpret it and understand it, how to assess and make sense of what happens in this passage. When we say every baptism or every sermon can fit with baptism, or at least it ought to, what do we mean by that? Well, we mean we come to God's word anticipating the proclamation of the gospel, anticipating the proclamation of God's promises in Christ. And the role of baptism, just like the role of the Lord's Supper, is to signify and seal to us those promises. So, we're going to ask some interesting questions. We're going to have to go a little bit deep into how to understand this text. But let us all be reminded by baptism. Let us all be reminded by the Lord's table that we are headed toward. That our goal in all of this is to hear the voice of our Lord Jesus Christ speaking to us through his word. God's Word is living and active, and we anticipate that living Word together this morning. This morning, from Genesis chapter 16, we hear the good news that our God is a God who sees. And we're going to see this in three parts. First, we're simply going to look at the details of the story. What just happened? How do we assess it? What's the point in very general terms? Second, we're going to hear how that story is a warning And when we do that, remember this context, baptism, the Lord's Supper, God's promises, God warns us graciously. We're going to hear it as a warning. And then third, and finally, we're going to hear all of this as a promise for us as his church. First, the details of the story. Genesis 16, of course, comes to us after the promises of God in chapter 12 and 15 to Abram. God has told Abram and Sarai that they are the family, the household, from which the line of promise would come. And he has promised them many descendants, despite the fact that they are now in old age. And we are told in this text that, in fact, ten years have passed. Verse 3, so after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, ten years have passed since God first gave that promise. And so, in a way that hopefully we can resonate with and not just be judging Abram and Sarai, hopefully in a way that we allow to um, meet us, as it were, we can sense how this would be a trial of faith. God has told Abram he's going to have many descendants. They are only getting older and they do not yet have children. And so in the midst of that very understandable trial of faith, Sarai hatches a plan. She is going to have Abram take her servant as his wife. Now, this all sounds very strange to us, but this was something of a a common practice in the culture at the time. We actually have other witnesses to this kind of thing happening at similar times in the culture around them. And the idea was that a child born to Sarai's servant would count as her child. And so she thinks... This is sort of like a version of surrogate motherhood. She thinks that now what happens between Abram and Sarai having a child, or excuse me, Abram and Hagar, will result in Sarai having a child. Abram, we are told, consents to this plan. Hagar has a child, or excuse me, Hagar becomes pregnant. Later, the child will be born. And the result is, I hope you sense predictably, conflict and strife in the household. Sarai goes to Abram and says, well, first we're told, uh, the end of verse 4, she, that is Hagar, looked with contempt on her mistress. Now, 
the, the word here for looking with contempt, this would be a very ordinary thing that would be happening, that Hagar is like, hey, I've, I've got the baby, you don't. And in that culture, that's like all that mattered. And so this is a really big deal. And whether it's Hagar's fault or not, it's not clear. Sarai interprets this as condemning her, even though, well, what do we know in the story? It's the very thing she was hoping would happen. In verse 5, And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I have my, gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. Sarai blames Abram. And if that feels like it doesn't make any sense to you, it's not supposed to feel like it makes any sense. Abram, though, doesn't really speak justice. He doesn't try to set things right at all. He simply tells her, well, you're in charge of Hagar. Do what you will. And that is a rather disturbing thing to say. And Sarai understood what Abram said. And so we are told in the end of verse 6, Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Sarai dealt so harshly with Hagar that Hagar felt the need to flee. But in fleeing, she flees into the wilderness. So she's going to a place, presumably traveling back to her homeland in Egypt. But nevertheless, on her own, pregnant, crossing the wilderness, this is obviously endangering her life. This is how terrible it was in the home with Abram and Sarai. However, we are told, verse 7, that the angel of the Lord intervenes. The angel of the Lord, in very ancient Christian interpretation, tells us that this is in fact a manifestation of the Lord himself, what we call a theophany, a visible expression of God's glory in the creation, because later we are told it is the Lord who said all of these things. And so the angel, in a sense, distinguished from the Lord and yet simply is the presence of the Lord. This angel of the Lord tells uh, Hagar to return to Sarai. Now, that feels mm, a little bit harsh at first. Right? Things were so bad that that's why Hagar is fleeing. She's like, how is this helpful? But the point is that the angel of the Lord is promising Hagar that she will be protected. He's promising Hagar that she will have a son, verse 11, that that son will be given the name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. And then he promises, verse 12 sounds rather strange, he'll be a wild donkey of a man, but this simply is an imagery of freedom, saying, look, Ishmael is going to have the freedom that you are wanting. Hagar interprets all of this as the Lord looking after her. And so he's, she's very clear about this. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. Verse 13, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here, I have seen him who looks after me. Hagar returns. She lives as a wife of Abram. And we're told that she bore a son, Ishmael. Now, what do we do with this story? It is difficult. I already tried to bring out some of the details in it that help us assess, but we always have to be careful when we are assessing the right or wrong of an action if we are not explicitly told it is right or wrong. It's especially complicated here because this was a common practice in the cultures that Abram was being called out of. Moreover, if we begin with the question, was this right or wrong? What is usually the reason we are doing that? It's usually because we think the point to the text is to give us a moral lesson. If we want to, like, what is the point to this? What can we learn? Well, here we have two options. We say, Abram did something good, do that. Or, 
that more likely Abram did something bad. Don't do that. And we want a lesson like that. But where do we begin? Well, what we need is gospel, a promise. Well, how do we get there? We need to be asking always, not first of all, what are the individuals in the text doing? But ultimately, what is God doing? What is God doing for his people in the text? What does the text say about who God is? How does the text fit as part of the broader story leading to our Lord Jesus Christ? And what signals are given in the passage itself that tells us those things? Well, in this text, there are signals given by the narrator that make it clear that he is condemning the action. And the key is in the word choice. Now, The word choices when he's telling the story are very clear in the English. It's even more clear in the Hebrew that the narrator is echoing a previous story in Genesis. And I'm curious if I highlight the places, if you might even notice what that story is. We are told in verse 3, regarding Sarai's actions, so Abram's wife, two verbs. She took Hagar and gave to Abram. Now these are the exact same verbs speaking of Eve in the garden, taking the fruit and giving it to Adam. Then we are told in verse 2, and Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. This is the exact phrase used when God addresses Adam and says, you listened to the voice of your wife. It doesn't just mean to listen, to hear, to take seriously. It's the idiom for obey. And so that phrase of what Abram does is echoing in a very direct way the language for what Adam did in the garden. And then we have all of the blame shifting. You notice the strangeness of Sarai managing to blame Abram. Well, all of that same thing is exactly what happened in the garden. Each one involved in the fall blaming the other. All of those together serve to give the impression, to give the analysis actually, that what we have happening is another fall. A a repeating, another entering into the rebellion against God that happened in the Garden of Eden. And by making those connections, the narrator is clearly saying what is happening here is a bad thing. Now, two conclusions from that. First, the one I already said, the narrators are making it clear that this is bad. This is something like a fall into sin, just like the first one in the garden. But now second, that does something even more for us. The scriptures then, the spirit inspiring the scriptures, reminding us that the point to this story is how it fits in with the broader story. This is not simply a story you can pull out and ask what is the point, what is the moral lesson, but the point to it is how it fits in the one story of the Bible. Its meaning is in its connection with all the way back to Genesis 3 verse 15. And what was that promise of Genesis 3 in response to this fall into sin? That one day, the offspring of the woman, the child of promise, would crush the serpent's head. God was going to rescue his lost creation through the line of promise. The whole point to the story up till now is that Abram and Sarai are that line of promise. The family through whom God was going to rescue the whole world. And so he told Abram, through you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And when you step back and you have that story in view, now what is the drama of the story? 
that household is under attack. There is sin and rebellion and chaos. There is confusion. Who is going to be the line of promise? How is this going to happen? The one who looks like maybe it's going to be in this strange way through Hagar has actually fled the household. The picture in the drama, in part of that bigger story, is that the household, the line of promise is being attacked and there is chaos, sin within that household. What that has happened by the end of the story? God has acted to preserve that household. He protects Hagar. He sends her back. Hagar bears the child. Uh, in fact, the language of the end of the, end of the text is that quite likely Abram is, is protecting her from Sarai at this point. She has the status of Abram's wife. By the end of the text, God has protected that line of promise. And he has done so for the sake of Christ. For the sake of the one who would come, who would set right all of this sin and chaos and brokenness. We must always read the scriptures, first of all, in that way, as part of that one story that leads to Christ. Now, within that context, within that big picture of what God is doing, the household of promise has been attacked. God has acted to preserve and protect the line of promise. We can hear more of what is happening. In that attack, there is something of a warning. And that is the next thing we need to see in the text this morning. There is this big picture, this big story of what God is doing. In the midst of that thing that God is doing, there is a warning that stands for God's covenant people through the ages. Because one of the things that is made abundantly clear, when the scriptures tell a story in a way that echoes the very fall into sin, is that this thing is being condemned. And we must hear it that way. You, if you've grown up with the scriptures, surely you've noticed there are plenty of weird stories where something like this happens. Where something like the polygamy of the ancient cultures, where someone would have multiple wives, is also present within the covenant people. And it's not always explicitly, openly condemned. And so it can be a little bit confusing how to interpret it. And so this account here must stand as a very clear testimony to the wickedness, to the rebellion, and to the destructiveness of that practice of Abram taking a second wife. It was evil and wicked, and it is clearly condemned in the way the story is told. We have to hear that, though, in two different ways. What's one way? Well, one way is that this practice is clearly contrary to the way God created things to be. The created order in Genesis 1 and 2 is very clearly that marriage is one man and one woman. That is the created good that God ordained and built into the very structure of creation. And what we see here in Genesis 16 is that when people live contrary to the created order, the result is chaos and destructiveness. Do not miss that clear connection. We are in the book of Genesis. We are in really close proximity to that created order being established. And this account says very clearly, again, remember the language echoing the fall, it says very clearly that when someone tries to live contrary to that order, the result is destruction. Brothers and sisters, that particular way of addressing sin must warn us 
That particular way of addressing sin must guard and protect us. This is a gift of God's grace that he sets before us so that we might, in the very small rebellions we flirt with, in the very seemingly first steps of foolishness that we consider, that we toy with in our minds, that the Lord might show us so clearly, don't go there. Here is what it leads to, and when that path of sin and rebellion goes to where it leads, the result is chaos and destruction, not simply because God made up rules, but because there's a way the world is made to work that is good, and life contrary to that is destructive. Because of the culture wars of our day, because of the debates with those who would reject what we call biblical marriage and biblical sexual ethic and these sorts of things. We so easily get caught up into battles and arguments that are simply a matter of competing sets of rules. Which set of rules is going to be followed? When we do that, we are in danger. Because all you gotta do is swap out the rules, right? Maybe you can just go down that path. We must hear what God's word is saying. It's not just a rule set. Life contrary to God's word, is life contrary to reality itself. And life contrary to reality itself cannot work. Be warned. But be warned as a gift of God's grace. It's a warning, like, as I've said a million times, a sign before a curve in a road when you're driving down a mountain. That that sign, you don't grumble about the sign, oh, all of these rules telling me to avoid that cliff and turn left. The sign is not a burden. The sign is not driving to despair. The sign is God's good gift protecting you from actual danger. And indeed, the last thing the Lord wants you to do is conclude, therefore, it's all on me to get this right. Therefore, it's all on me to somehow earn something from God. Because that is the second way that this text warns us. Galatians chapter 4 tells us, that what we have in this account is the paradigm, the really, really clear example of what works righteousness looks like. God had given Abram and Sarai a promise. Their actions here, their efforts to bring about the promise on their own. I don't know, God's not doing it. We've got to find our own way to make this happen, our own way to accomplish what God has promised. That is the epitome of what it means to live by confidence in your own efforts rather than living by confidence in the promise of God. You sense that in the reading of the text. Just on the surface reading, what is happening? God has given great and glorious promises. They are trying their own efforts instead of trusting them, and the result is chaos. Now I know at the surface level that seems really clear, but this is complicated. God's promises don't mean, therefore, you don't do anything. God's promises don't mean it doesn't matter what you do or how you live. In fact, faith in God's promises does affect how you live. You say, so wait a minute, how do we tell the difference? There's a way of, there's a way of living and acting and doing that is contrary to faith, but there's also a way of living and acting and doing that flows from faith. We could say a few things to help us identify it. It's one of those things you sort of you know it when you see it. If you are seeking a good thing, but in a way that is contrary to wisdom, contrary to God's word, that's a sign of works righteousness. You're seeking something that God has told you to seek, that you're working toward, you're wanting, but as a shortcut to get there, 
pursuing a path that God otherwise forbids. Or even more complicatedly, doing everything right, but anxiously. Do you know what I mean by anxiously? Doing everything right, but with that tone, the feel, the vibe of it, that it's all about me getting it right. Doing good things, but with the sense, the feel, the heart of me doing the good things is what will make it happen. Now, if we keep trying to diagnose this, we're all in trouble because we all do that. So now what? Well, what's the point to the text? What should Abram and Sarai be doing? You hit the moment where you say, man, I don't know. I guess I'm always tempted to be kind of trusting what I do. I'm always tempted to have this wrong. What is the answer? Well, the point all along is God's promises. Look to the promises of God. The answer will never be in the endlessly looking inward. You'll only find more problems. The answer is only ever to look to the promises of God. And so as we hear that warning, the purpose of the warning is not to drive us to despair. The purpose of the warning is not to make us assess, assess, assess. You'll only find more problems. The purpose of the warning is to say, look to the promises of God in Christ. And brothers and sisters, is that not what this text is absolutely full of? The third thing we consider this morning Verse 7, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. How glorious. The angel of the Lord, the manifestation of God's presence in his creation, seeks out, finds, in the middle of the wilderness, at this one little spring of water, seeks out and finds this Hagar. And he reveals he knows what's going on. Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? Okay. He's asking, right, but he already already says he knows, right? Hagar, servant of Sarai. Okay. He knows her. He knows what's going on. She says, I'm fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel Lord said to her, return. And remember, that whole return is then a promise of protection. And Hagar interprets something from this. She called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Now we can ask, we have asked many questions about how to assess what Abram and Sarai have done. We can ask many questions about how it fits in the broader story of Scripture, and we absolutely should. But Hagar is the one who is wise here. What is the conclusion she points us to? That all of this says something about who God is. And here is how we must hear this. Not simply something God did once. Hagar concludes that this is something about God's name. His making known, his revealing, his very who he isness. His character, his nature, his being as the creator. And so Hagar is wisely responding with a name. That this is what God has revealed in the making himself known in his creation. And at, at that essence, who is he? What is one of the ways he can be named is who he is as the creator, the God of seeing. Seeing here does not mean omniscience. 
It doesn't mean God knows everything. God sees everything. That's not what this means. This is the seeing of God cares. This is the seeing not of God from some lofty distance, knew because he knows everything that Hagar was at this well, at the spring of water. This is rather the seeing of the God who cares and comes to her and then gives her promises and then orders things for her protection. The God who sees. And we must hear this then in a moment of drama. Hagar, at this moment, in the eyes of the world, in the eyes of the culture, in the eyes of the covenant people, in the eyes of every single human being, was a nobody. An absolute nobody. In the middle of a wilderness. And she is the one She is the one who receives this presence of the angel of the Lord to give promises and to protect. protect. Not only is she a nobody in general terms, but consider this story standing at the beginning here in Genesis of the story of Israel where it is an Egyptian slave woman that the Lord shows particular concern for. The Lord, at this point in the story, we can say shockingly, shows concern for the nation that will come from her, from the descendants that will come from Ishmael. And he talks about their character and what they will be like and God's sovereignty over all of it and his lordship over all of it, all with this tone of seeing and caring. These are nations that would come from Israel that would often be in conflict with Israel and yet the Lord is including them in his plan and showing care and concern for the one who stands at the very beginning of those families and nations existing. Here is the mission of God. It being revealed that God's purpose eternally is the salvation and rescue of the nations of the world. And here then is what we can call the shape of the sun. That here is a promise of what Christ would do, but in a way that is eternally pointing upward to who God is. That in our Lord Jesus Christ, God is revealed as the one who seeks and saves the lost. That what he does here, seeking Hagar, is of a piece with that seeking of all of his lost creatures when our Lord Jesus Christ would be born and suffer and die and rise again. And that this is revealing, as Hagar so wisely says, the very character of God. A God who sees. This is the shape. When our Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, on the cross in John 19, would see his mother. Now his mother, whom as to his humanity, he is younger than, but he is also there as the eternal son, as eternal as his heavenly father. And there the eternal son sees his mother and he takes care of her. He says, John, she's your mother now. This is who God is being revealed, caring for the one who the world would not see, who in the eyes of the world was an absolute nobody. And here then, at the cross, here in the seeking of Hagar, is God being made known for you. Because you see, it's not just about a story, a foreshadowing of something that would happen later 
It is whenever God acts, he has this shape. Whenever God acts, this is the impression made in the world, that this is always and ever who God is. He is a God who sees. He sees you. And his seeing of you is not simply the seeing of omniscience, he knows everything. It is the seeing of caring. And you, brothers and sisters, need that promise no differently than Hagar did. You need the confidence that God sees. Hagar was both a nobody, lack of status, and in physical danger. When you are in seasons of life that feel small, unseen, neglected, receive the promise that God is a God of seeing. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit up and when I rise when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. This is who God is. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. God's promise for you. Not only in seasons of life that feel small, in affliction, in suffering, a sick child, physical pain, a diagnosis, loneliness, broken relationships. Psalm 139 continues, You search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Or verse 16, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. A God who sees, but who sees in the shape of the sun, the shape of the cross, the shape of self-giving. The God who sought Hagar is the God who has sought you. And you get, you are called to, you get to continue to rest in that promise of who God is. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.